Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. No concerns whatsoever. i got to say, if people are out there on TV telling mistruths, um, disguising the facts of this thing, that's going to make it unpopular. As I mentioned before, and, and Steve shows the polling, Steve shows the polling. Sorry, it's funny when that happens. <laughs> 18% of Americans before the Reagan tax cuts thought they were going to get a tax cut. Look, when you have a sling fest, a mud fest on TV, when pundits are slamming each other about this tax bill before it passes, that's what's going to happen. But when we get this done, when people see the withholding improving, when they see the jobs occurring, when they see bigger paychecks, a fairer tax system, a simpler tax code, that's what's going to produce the results. Results are going to make this popular. Oh, yeah, Paul Ryan having the best week ever because it looks like tax reform is going through. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Thank you so much for joining. An honor and a privilege to have you with me here in the Freedom Hut team. Much to discuss today. Gosh, only a few more few more shows left in 2017. I'm going to miss you all very much until 2018. Be on vacation for a few days. We got a, we got a big week here to get through first, including taxes today. Oh, my. Uh, I would note that it was celebrated as quite a victory when this went through the House earlier today. But there's a little problem. And the little problem is that they have to vote on it again. Now, they're gonna vo- it's going to be fine. I, I don't foresee any issues here. But it just gives you that last-minute sense of, like, rah-rah, like, what's going on here that they're going to have to redo it because people were tacking on stuff at the very end. Because some folks were trying to uh, put some provisions in the bill at the last second. Um, and this just goes to show you that I like the tax cuts. I support the tax cuts. This is the right move. It's not the best tax cut package imaginable, though. And there's definitely some stuff being done for some favors being done here for special interests and donors. And, hey, you know, you can tell me, Buck, that's how the sausage gets made. And that's fine. But let's just understand that we're eating some sausage. All right. Don't tell me it's filet mignon if it's a sausage. And that's what that's what we're faced with here with the tax code issue or tax uh, cuts. So the Senate's what? Senate's voting on it tonight, right? That's the Senate will vote on it tonight. Then the House going to have to hold another vote. I think Paul Ryan just wanted a do-over. This was, this was like, he's like, I just want to do it again. You know, and he's just. Coming back out there, he had the whole celebration. Everyone gets to get all excited about it. Um, so, yeah, that. He, he was very, very – I haven't seen Paul Ryan this happy, I don't know, maybe ever, actually. I want to start off by thanking the American people, our constituents, for sending us here to do this work for them. This is one of the most important pieces of legislation that Congress has passed in decades – to help the American worker, to help grow the American economy. This is profound change, and this is change that is going to put our country on the right path. 
for all those millions of men and women in America who are living paycheck to paycheck, who are struggling to get ahead, help is on the way. For all those businesses that are tied with one hand behind their back in this global economy, having a hard time compete, help is on the way. They say help is on the way. That's that's what they're telling us. And let me say that the Brookings, the Brookings Institute, which is a left-wing think tank, it's like kind of center-left, but it's definitely Democrat think tank, uh, said that 80.4% of Americans under this current bill would get a tax cut. The average cut is $2,140 to their tax bill. Only 4.8% get a tax increase, and they are exclusively going to be high earners and probably people that have real estate. Sorry, Tyrone. Real estate in <laughs> womp, womp, in uh, high-tax high blue states. But uh, it's a good thing overall for well, at least 80% of the American people. But the responses that you see from Democrats on this are amazing. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is so divorced from reality. I I wonder sometimes if it's just performance theater or something, if this is like a performance art piece where she's like, I've just gotten to be the craziest Democrat ever. And she is tweeting out things today because now Twitter, look, every, everyone in politics is following Trump's lead. They're like, I want to go through a press office. I'm just going to just going to let it rip from my Twitter account. Pelosi is saying, first, she's called it Armageddon. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of words that would uh, be fair to the exaggeration that she's that she has used. She's using the hashtag GOP tax scam. And she wrote like a couple hours ago, shamefully, Republicans were cheering against the children as they rob from their future and ransack the middle class to reward the rich. Hashtag GOP tax scam. Now, there are things that people can disagree on in terms of the wisdom of them. There are, there are areas where reasonable people could come to different conclusions. But I have not seen any analysis from anybody who is respected by either side that suggests that what the GOP is currently doing will raise taxes on the middle class. And... How the Brookings Institute, which, as I said, is a Democrat think tank, can come out with an average cut of $2,140 and 80% of people getting, 80% of Americans overall getting a uh, tax cut. And then Nancy Pelosi saying that this is, you know, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. I think the Democrats are a little rattled by this. I, I do believe that they were planning on going into 2018 with the narrative that 2017 was just about Russia collusion and Trump barely staying in office and we need to uh, to you know the to get rid of all this corruption and sexism and racism in DC that is now symbolic of or that is symbolized by Donald Trump and all this other stuff instead they had to deal with hearing this earlier today. On this vote, the yeas are 227 and the nays are 203. The conference report is adopted without objection. The motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. 
Woo! Woo! Paul Ryan. I feel like you know he could be drinking one of those giant blue mixed drinks that you see in like Key West and Bourbon Street. You know, I just rule of thumb, everybody. If the mixed drink is totally blue, I think you want to avoid. You know, I think that's not the not the color you want to drink. Uh, other ones you can get away with, but if it's got too much food coloring in it, it's usually a bad sign. Uh, but yeah, he looks like he's ready to party. He's very excited about this. The tax cuts will go through. And now um, the GOP gets to go on vacation. The Congress gets to go on vacation with something done. I have been saying it all along. If if they went into the Christmas break with not a single major le- piece of legislation passed while they hold the House, the Senate, and the presidency and the White House. I, you know, how are we going to get people to turn out for the midterms? You know, vote for us this time. We promise we mean it. You know, we'll actually show up to work now. I mean, it's just it wasn't going to be feasible for them to defend uh, against the Democrat talking point that they are worthless. At least give us a shot to do something, you know. Bernie Sanders will offer free school, no tuition. Somebody else will pay. So, look, it's it's a good day for the good day for the market. Obviously, good day for the economy. I think, and I don't think we're celebrating too soon because the Senate they have the votes, right? I mean, there's no no one thinks that this is. Although, in this political environment, there's kind of a sense of like never say never. You know, that's what I said to some. I said this to some of my never Trump friends. I'm just gonna tell you right now. I was like, guys. Like, it's never going to happen. He's never going to be president. You know, that's why I'm never Trump. I'm like, never say never. That was, you know, like June, July, August rolled around before the election. I'm like, I really don't. I think you should back off this. I will never support the president thing, guys. Like, oh, no, he's never. Never is a a strong word. But we're pretty much there. We are, you know, it is uh, first and goal and we're on the one yard line. Um, so I think statistically speaking, we're about we're about at that same level. It's looking pretty good. Uh, and you know, there's some problems here and there. I was very pleased to see that uh, Trish Regan, who's one of my favorites over on the Fox Business Channel, uh, was calling out the fact that the carried interest loophole, which is just a everybody. Look, I'm not a naysayer. I'm not a wet blanket on the parade here or or that's I'm mixing my metaphor. I'm not a. I'm not uh, a rainy day in your punch bowl. I'm not, you know, I'm, now I'm doing it on purpose. Um, no, but it, it, the carried interest deduction is, is for hedge fund managers, basically, for people that borrow huge amounts of money and then write off the borrowing cost against their, uh, their income. And when you do that on a massive scale, it's a tremendous tax advantage. And the people who are doing that are already making very, very high uh, incomes. So that's just uh, keeping the wall. That's Stephen. That's the Steve Mnuchin constituency right there. That's just keeping them happy. So I'm not saying you know if yeah if if there's horse trading going on because we have to because it's going to help everybody get two thousand dollars and it's going to be great for corporations and businesses and we're going to have this windfall of capital from overseas because they're going to be repatriating that cash. Great, great, great. But let's just be clear about what is and is not happening. That's all. Because I'm keeping it real. Because I'm keeping it real. By the way, you know that Murray from, uh, I think it's Murray, right, from the show, I mean, from the movie Clueless, who is the originator of the phrase, as far as I know, because I'm keeping it real. I've seen him in some commercials recently. You seen that? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the commercial, what, do you know what it is? I forget. 
It's for a health insurance company. Oh, that's right. Thank you. It's a health insurance company. I'm like, it's it's Murray. He also was in Scrubs. I don't know the actor's name, but yeah, I saw Clueless Donald a bunch Faison. of times. What? Donald Faison. Thank you, Tyrone. Ready to go with it. Donald Faison. So, but that's that's what we do here in the Freedom Mode. We keep it real. And I want to tell you that the carried interest that that's a that's a little gross. That that doesn't have to be there. Now you can all tell me, and I just want to. I'm going to make a little note of this. I'm going to just say this. I'm going to have a little little bit of. Uh, I'm going to give myself some space after the commercial here. Give you the other side of all this, not the. The Nancy Pelosi GOP tax scam is so badly written, the GOP will have to take another vote at it. Ah, ha, ha, ha. I mean, who cares, right? Pelosi's saying crazy stuff all day. In fact, Pelosi steals from us the ability to satirize what she says because it's so crazy. She's part of the like, everyone's going to die. But, you know, you know everyone's going to die because of net neutrality. Now everyone's going to die because of the tax code. You know, and everyone's going to die because of Russia collusion. I'm like, you know what? We are, we are, in fact, all going to die, but not because of these things that get the Democrat Party and the left so worked up. We're just all going to die because that's what happens. We're going to die. Uh, but I, after the break, I just, so I'm on the record about it. I've got some concerns about spending and the debt, which was a thing that I remember many of you, many of my conservative friends, fellow Americans, patriots, we used to worry about. And still a problem. So we're just going to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about why that could be an issue. Why that could be uh, an ish, as the as the kids say. I, mean, I don't think they actually say that. I might be making that up, but sounded like something the kids say. And then we'll talk about some other things that's going on. But today, the big thing today by far, before everyone's getting ready to do whatever they do over the holidays, is taxes. House passed it. They're going to have to take another. They're going to have to go back and... Uh, and uh, touch home plate one more time here, but they're going to do it. Baseball, baseball metaphor. You're proud, Tyro. I know. Thank you. I worked that one in. And uh, yeah, I know nothing about baseball, really. Somebody asked me not long ago who my favorite active baseball player was, and I was like, Don Mattingly, obviously. He retired 20 years ago, Buck. It's like, eh, close enough. So, yes, we will talk a bit about the debt, and then I've got, just as, as a little teaser here, we have a bunch of national security issues to talk about, including this unbelievable story about Hezbollah getting a pass from the Obama administration because taking aggressive action against Hezbollah criminal activities, including trafficking cocaine into the United States. Taking action against that might have been uh, might have made the mullahs in Tehran upset and Obama needed his legacy Iran nuke deal. So told the DOJ to back off. It's almost like the DOJ was a political instrument under the Obama administration, and maybe there were some other folks who stayed behind after Obama left who still had a very partisan view of their Justice Department activities. <gasps> hmm. We'll be right back. We have two different views of what America ought to be like. Every single Democrat, apparently in the House and also in the Senate, is double down on the status quo. So I guess that tells you that they think we're doing just fine. And there's no way we can do better. Look, if you look at the last eight years, America has consistently underperformed. Not one year of 3% growth. Not one. That's not the best America can do. Not one year of 3% growth. Mr. McConnell. Unacceptable. Look, I, I agree with Mitch. I just, I tease, I tease. I kid, I kid, Mitch. You're, you're, 
You know, today you get to take a victory lap. Oh, thank you, Buck. Don't be a little punk next time. Uh, but, yeah, it's true. I don't know, if, if I were Mitch, I would slap me right now. So, there you have it. Uh, this is where I, I, I just, I want to be a little reminder here. How many folks have even, and I, and I can't do a, a straw poll because I can't see you right now across the country and in some cases around the world. Whoa, what's up, Team Buck International? I always love it. We get, we get emails. I got emails from people in, uh, we even had callers too overseas, but emails people in Germany, South Korea, downrange in the war zones, all over the place. Uh, but I just want to say that not enough people know what the deficit was this past year. 2017, I want to take a guess. It's around $666 billion. A half a trillion dollars, everybody. Actually, more than a half a trillion dollars, as you know, but that's trillion with a T. That's a lot of money to owe on top of the $20 trillion we already owe. We also have, and I have not forgotten, we just we haven't been able to get, there are only a few people that I really want to hear from on cryptocurrency and crypto assets, so uh, I haven't forgotten my promise to you to talk about Bitcoin. In fact, maybe I'll make sure we get to that before the break, but you do have these things like Bitcoin that could completely change the way we think about international currency and markets. No one really knows right now what's going to happen, but uh, the fact that so much of our economic advantage in this country is based on, one, credit. I mean, I'll I'll be talking to you later a little bit about farmers and the problems they face. Guess what? Farmers are up to debt in their eyeballs, uh, rather up to their eyeballs in debt. Sorry. Um. Uh, And you also have uh, student loan debt at a trillion dollars and you have car loan debt, I think also close to it. I mean, people have the subprime car loan market has exploded. So we got a lot of private debt, too, that's never going to get paid off. And you have an ever expanding gap. At least it feels that way. It has been expanding uh, between wages and productivity and wages and actual uh, buying power, right? Meaning that if you have assets, you've been doing really well last 20. If you own a home, if you own stock, if, you, if you're just showing up to work, it's getting harder and harder for you. And while I think this tax reform package will help with that, there are structural problems, my friends. $20 trillion in debt, $666 billion deficit this year alone, and debts as far as anyone can see... And no political will to deal with this whatsoever. People don't even want to hear Look, I spent like three minutes on it. You're like, Buck, shut up. Tax reform is passed. MAGA. All right, I know. I know. Tax, tax reform is going through. MAGA, it's going to be great. $2,000 on average for everybody. Look, I want, I want, I could use that two grand. I'm excited. Uh, but there's still some problems, folks. I'm just, like I said, because I'm keeping it real. Talk about some, uh, Hillary Clinton stuff coming up, because that'll be fun. We're going to ask her one very simple question. You know what it is. What happened? How corrupt is Hillary Clinton? It's pretty bad. I mean, I want to talk to you about that, but hold on one second. Okay. So there's some differences between the way Republicans and Democrats act. These are generalizations, but hey, it's a radio show and generalizations are fun. I do not ever recall, I could be wrong, but I do not ever recall 
uh, students being pulled out of school because a member of the first family went to the school to pay a visit, just to like say hi to the kids. I, I do not remember that ever happening during the Obama years, and while I was pretty young during the Clinton years, I certainly don't remember it then either. Sure enough, in Connecticut, oh, hello, Connecticut, Darian and Greenwich send their regards. Uh, in, in, in Connecticut, some parent, I don't know if it's a fancy part of Connecticut or not, she was visiting, but who cares? I like to think, I like to just make, it's a tri-state thing, all right? You, you make fun of Jersey because it's Jersey. And then you, as a New Yorker, you also have to give Connecticut a rough time for being so posh. Oh, do you just have like a Connecticut accent? I know that Connecticut actually is not all a bunch of fanciness, but that's what we think of here in the city because some of the nicest or some of the most expensive, I should say, towns in the whole country are just outside of city limits in Connecticut. Okay, so Ivanka Trump, uh, who is absolutely uh, centrist in many of her political proclivities, right? She's some people say that she's not a conservative. I don't know, but she's a senior advisor to the president. She went and and visited a school in in Connecticut, and parents pulled their kids out of the school because they were so offended at the notion of the presence of the first daughter in their high school. Uh, this is why when I talk about Democrat delusions and liberal hysteria and we use, I, th- I think snowflake as a term has kind of gotten played out. I think people are kind of tired, right? We, we were all melting snowflakes and drinking snowflake tears. And I feel like we've reached the point now where we're going to have to come up with a new, a new term for the fragile emotions of the Democrat left in this country. And, but there is a difference between the way Democrats approach a lot of things the way Republicans do. And you see it here with this. It just, you know, I come from a family that's pretty conservative. It never would have occurred to my family, any of my family in a million years to either stay home from school or keep the kids home from school because a Democrat president's family member was visiting the school. There's a, you know, there, there should be a basic sense of like, oh, wow, the first family like this is this is neat. This is neato copacetic you know whatever that that would be the normal response an abnormal response to be you know i have to keep my child home in case she's uh, case what child gets to shake hands with or say hi to ivanka trump kid would be lucky like what's the problem but this is a difference in the mindset and it's you know when we talk about the political and the cultural it's important to keep in mind that the separation between those two things is really non-existent especially on the left that's part of what the democrat party has been doing for decades they have cultivated a brand you don't just talk about climate change and support planned parenthood and and say that yeah sure there are 50 genders who cares you don't just say all that because those are your political positions you say it because it's like you belong to a club a group a tribe and it's the tribe for the the cool smart good people and you either take those positions that are part of the club or you're one of the bad people but it's a branding mechanism right the democrats have created the perception and they've had a tremendous amount of help from hollywood and the media as we know and academia that 
Democrats are the they're the party of caring and the party of cool. And I think they're the party of delusions and disconnect from reality. But nonetheless, that's why they act in many cases the way that they do, because it's not just about what they think. It's about who they are. Right. Yeah. Is, is, is the presence of a member of the first family at a high school going to you know, pollute the minds of, uh, of some high school? Of course not. Right. It doesn't matter. But so it's it's social signaling. It's I'm going to keep my kid at home because I'm I'm taking I'm, I'm taking a, uh, a stand for the team here. Democrat team, left wing team, whatever, however you want to call it. Anyway, I just saw that and it, and it annoyed me to no end. I mean, I, I also I still remember when I saw some post on Facebook that went viral with a. Uh, not soul cycle. I don't know if you guys have that around the country or not. It's here in New York. It's you go in and you, I may have done it one time. It may have happened once and you go in and and it's like exercise bikes with really loud music and they actually light candles and there'll be a, a very, um, very uh, fit and enthusiastic. Well, in my case, lady teaching the class who's like, just hold on to your intention and just Spin your little heart out. Yeah, spin class. That's right. And I was like, what is, my in- what is my intention to not have a gross dad bod? I'm confused. I guess that's my intention. But I feel like it was a deeper, more like zen thing than that. Anyway, there was somebody who does a spin class in D.C. Or has a spin class in D.C. Runs one. And she said she saw Ivanka Trump. And she is going to insist next time that she gets some time to talk to her about her concerns about the country. And it's like... No, no, not not cool. Not OK. All right. She's just the, she's just there to take your class. Doesn't really want to be accosted by you to have you be like, I just think that like the polar bears are starving. And like, I'm just trying to teach this class and I'm so distracted by like the starving polar bears and like do something, Ivanka. Yeah. So there's that. Um, I see this all. I see this all the time, though, with there are no boundaries for Democrats between like what could be. Uh, considered a political position and what is uh, day-to-day life and what's going on in day-to-day life. So, okay. Anyway, that's what I saw the Ivanka thing. Now let's make fun of Hillary. I'm sorry. Let's talk about the latest situation <laughs> with Hillary Clinton. So this is up on Fox. It's based on a new Federal Election Commission complaint. And there is an accusation here. An accusation of corruption and Clinton. And those things go together like peanut butter and jelly, as we know. So with that, let me say I'm actually going to hold this one. I'll talk to you about what happened after the break, because it seems that the Clintons were trying to do an end run on campaign finance. And, oh, it's so dirty and there's so much hypocrisy and it's so Clintonian. And maybe also talk to you about how Franken still when is Tyrone, when is Franken stepping down? Do we know yet? Has he said yet? No. It was supposed to be January all along. So it was, it was okay. Okay, so I'm 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 jumping the gun a little bit here. All right, all right. Some people are saying, "Buckeye, Buckeye, I smell and I told you so about that whole thing." Ah, no, 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 not yet, everybody. I still, I said he was resigning. I still, but I'm getting nervous. We'll talk about Hillary though and the corruption. <laughs> That's that should just be the title of her autobiography, "The Corruption." We'll talk about that after the break. Stay with me. Before we get into the uh, Hillary corruption, I'm really, I'm really milking this, aren't I? Uh, 
Greg in Oklahoma City. Listen on the iHeart app. What's up, Greg? Hey, Buck. I just wanted to reach out to you. See if you'd read the article by Politico they put out on Sunday about the DEA and Operation or uh, Project Cassandra and Hezbollah and all, that whole drug uh, laundering and gun running situation all over the world. Oh, I'm all over, my friend. Next hour, we got Shanzer joining from FDD to talk to me about it. We're going to go deep on that one. It's a, it's a pretty astonishing story, isn't it? Hey, it's quite, quite amazing, Buck. Um, as you might remember, I was a uh, sniper in the U.S. Army, so I had to deal with uh, division-level intelligence and tracking uh, people all over Sadr City and um, everything like that. And to see the network that Hezbollah has built throughout the world and the opportunity that we've had to make massive dents uh, within that organization um, and just have a, a blind eye turned to it and pushed aside and, and stopped is just is kind of mesmerizing uh, in the sense that how we just didn't go after these guys and they're known terrorists and... Yeah, and, and, and you know that Iranian proxies were directly responsible for killing U.S. soldiers in Iraq. That, that, that was the part probably that hit close to home. I have a buddy that lost a leg because of um, one of those types of IEDs called uh, EFPs. EFPs. Yeah, um, and to know that I was riding around and the Obama administration was like, no, we're not going to go after that. I know that they've killed thousands of soldiers and maimed tens of thousands with these things that are going to go straight through a tank for those that don't know what this is. Um, and they did nothing to stop this. And we knew when we were there in Iraq, or yeah, in Iraq, where in Iran they were making these out of the plan. Yeah, he, he's then, talking you know, about explosively formed penetrators, everybody, EFPs. I mentioned it before. And they basically can punch a cylindrical hole in armored vehicles uh, and do it, you know, kill everybody inside, maim them. And the Iranians were, were pushing as many of them into Iraq as fast as they could to kill U.S. soldiers. And Hezbollah was, was helping funding this and transfer those types of weapons into Iraq. And it, it's really infuriating that we did nothing about it or nothing to stop it when we, we had the chance to. Yeah, I mean, but, that, that Obama, and we're going to talk about the details of this coming up, but that Obama would have in any way taken pressure off of Hezbollah given that organization's history of blood, U.S. blood, as well as many other people's blood on its hands, is, is utterly appalling, but not all that surprising, in a sense, when you think about the priorities of the uh, Obama administration. But, Greg, thank you for your service, buddy. Thank you for your call. And we will touch with, next hour. Next hour, we're on this for sure. So thank you. It's a good reminder and, uh, and a preview of what is to come. All right. I've been, I've been talking about it. Yes, you have. Hillary, Hillary campaign, DNC accused of corrupt money scheme, a new FEC complaint. This up on Fox News. Let me give you some of the details. A new legal complaint filed with the Federal Election Commission alleges that the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee used state chapters as straw men to circumvent campaign donation limits and laundered the money back to her campaign. Ah, this doesn't really surprise anybody, does it? Quote, individuals who had maxed out their $2,700 contribution limit to the campaign could write an additional check for $353,400 to the Hillary Victory Fund. That figure represented $10,000 to each of the 32 states' parties who were part of the Victory Fund agreement. Three hundred twenty grand. And thirty three thousand four hundred to the DNC reads a passage from the book that's on this. The money would be deposited in the states first and then transferred to the DNC shortly after that money in the battleground states 
usually stayed in that state, but all other states funnel that money directly to the DNC, which quickly transferred the money to the Clinton campaign headquarters in Brooklyn. Yep. So they're saying $84 million was funneled illegally from the DNC through state party chapters. $84 million. Now, look, in, I know that they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on presidential races now, billion billion dollars now on a presidential race. But $84 million is a lot of money no matter what presidential race you're in or no matter what political race you're in. And that Hillary's people would have found some way to violate the spirit if not the letter of campaign finance laws is particularly rich because, and I think this is a, a critical point to hit on, the Democrats are the ones who are always yelling about dark money in politics, uh, corporations as people and making donations and all this. That is what Democrats are constantly whining about. Right? They're the ones who say that because of Citizens United Remember, Obama said outside money will flow in the United States. That was just an out-and-out lie, I should note. This is not true, as Samuel Alito mouthed during that State of the Union address. It just was not true. But here we are, the same individuals who will go on TV and shamelessly just prattle on about how Republicans want there to be all this money in politics and all this bad stuff, uh, all this bad stuff going on when it comes to funding campaigns, then we see when we when we actually get to open the books and look around a little bit, we find out that sure enough, sure enough, Democrats are pulling every dirty trick they can. And we're talking about the Clintons here, everyone. We're talking about Hillary. I want to know when we get a full financial accounting, a kind of Clinton campaign autopsy that lets us look at all of the different schemes and conspiracies and everything else that they had going on there because i i think that 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 is a component in why they're so outraged about trump winning because they did everything i mean they, they pulled out all the stops and they had the media in their back pocket and it was all supposed to happen they just ran a really unlikable charmless candidate who didn't even know why she was running and was just foisting herself on the american people and like all uh, unlike all of those whose egos greatly outpace their ability, Hillary Clinton assumed that while she was foisting herself on us to be the next president of the United States, she was doing us a favor. A big favor. So that's now finally melted away, I think, as a narrative because she lost again. But, you know, it's just a reminder that while we're uh, always told that the Trump campaign well, we're hearing all about the Russia stuff these days, and we're told all these stories about it. I pr- the more we look into it, the more we will find out that, sure enough, there was all kinds of shadiness, all kinds of shadiness when you look at Hillary's campaign. All right, one more. Th- Here's, I don't think we played this yesterday, and I just want to get into it a little bit. You got Franken, not yet resigned. Ties, ties keeping me calm in here. I'm not yet freaking out about this, but I, I might. Because Franken's got to go. That's too gross even for the Democrats at this stage of the game, I hope. Some of you are like, no, it's not, Buck. I I think it is, though. But you got Senator Manchin, who I don't believe was initially calling for Franken to step down. No, he was not, saying this. What they did to Al 
was atrocious. The Democrats, the most hypocritical thing I've ever seen done to a human being. And then have enough guts to sit on the floor and watch him give his speech and go over and hug him. That's hypocrisy at the highest level I've ever seen in my life. Made me sick. He hasn't resigned yet. He said he's going to resign. I hope he doesn't. I, I just, what is the uh, the mansion the mansion play here? Is he, you know, why why say this? Unless he really thinks that there's a chance that it would, ha- there, there's no reason to curry favor with Franken on the way out, and Manchin may get may get a little blowback from this. So why do it? Unless it's a trial balloon, right? Unless he's trying to just just creak that door open a little bit, where all of a sudden Franken's like, you know what? I'm just gonna stay. I'm just gonna be in this this Senate seat forever. I'm just gonna be here. Uh, I don't think that's gonna happen, but there's a part of me that thinks that. You know, it's going to (laughs) happen. So we will keep a close eye on that. Uh, One of uh, Trump's accusers, some interesting information, broke on the Hill last night. One of the people that has in the past accused Trump of sexual assault. I'll talk about that in the next hour. Also, that incredible story about the Obama administration and taking the heat, taking the pressure off of a terrorist organization, off of Hezbollah. We've got that. North Korea cyber hacking. Big second hour, big third hour. So stay right where you are. I'll be back in just a few. So you have said that uh, you've spoken often about the tax cuts that families will see in the first few years of the plan. What can you say about the tax cuts that individuals will see in the end of the next decade? Because the JCT analysis showed that sure. some so lower class... Are, we have every intent of making those permanent because of the Senate rules. You know why that, that sunset is there. So it is obviously our intent, like times past, to make all those permanent. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan saying they're going to make the tax cuts permanent. They passed it in the House. We are waiting on the big hurrah from the Senate. Woo! And uh, then the House is going to have to pass again, as I said to you. And so after that, then Trump is going to... That's a signing ceremony that I feel like it's going to be worth watching. I don't know why. I couldn't tell you how. I just have a feeling that Trump is going to... It's going to he's going to get it's going to get trumped up. It's going to get trumpified it's in a good way. Uh, that signing ceremony. I don't know what you know, he's going to come in on a, you know, dangling from a, I don't know. Helicopter with a cape on and it's going to be there's going to be some theatrics, right? There's going to be something behind it uh, because it's a big deal for the GOP. It is a it is a big deal. So anyway, uh Oh, one more thing I didn't get a chance to mention the last hour about the tax cuts and that whole situation. It's pretty amazing when you see that the analyses, I shouldn't even say nonpartisan analyses, but analysis from both sides is pretty clear that 80% of Americans will get a tax cut of some kind. If you pay taxes, basically, and you're not a really high earner or a property owner in a uh, blue state with already high property taxes because the changes to the state and local tax deduction salt. Uh, you're going to pay less in taxes. And yet somehow. And this was the Wall Street Journal reporting on it. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal, they're like, oh, my gosh, tax cuts like, yes, it's the Super Bowl over the Wall Street Journal right now. It does not get more exciting than the biggest tax. One point five trillion dollars of cuts. Biggest tax cut in 30 years. The Wall Street Journal's like, oh, baby, it's amazing. Like, they're, you know, what is the guy, who's the sports guy who would, like, yell the, you know, Dick, is it Dick Vitale? Is that yeah, him? Yeah, ESPN. What would he always yell? 
I don't know. Diaper dandy. It's beautiful, baby. It's beautiful, baby. Thank you. It's beautiful, baby. That's what I was trying to think of. It's beautiful, baby. Over the Wall Street Journal. That's what they're they're, they're getting their dick. Except at uh, the Wall Street Journal. So instead of doing the Dick Vitale thing, they're like, you know. It's a, it's a phenomenal expansion of the markets. So, yeah. Which is going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, I, I want to Oh, but 41% of Americans, according to the Wall Street Journal, say the tax plan is a bad idea. And this has become a Democrat talking point, which is somewhat astonishing when you think about it. How, how is this possible? That they don't that, that a majority of Americans don't like a tax cut. Well, when you look at roughly 50 percent of Americans don't pay any income tax and then you look at the power of the media to frame this narrative as they see fit. And you got Nancy Pelosi, who's like, everyone's going to die because of the tax cut. Uh, then. You know, I guess it's kind of scary, but no reasonable, rational analysis of this thing should make anybody oppose it unless you're going to talk to you about the debt, the deficit. Right. Then that's a whole other discussion. But the government shouldn't give you back more of your money. It is it is now, I think, an article of faith on the left that tax cuts are just a form of you stealing money from the government. Think of how twisted that logic is, how how backwards that psychology has become. But that's what they believe, that your money in the eyes of the Democrat Party, is not, in fact, your property. That is not the result of your labor, your decisions. It is whatever the government deigns to let you keep. That's what your money is. It's as though you're on an allowance. Whatever your cash accounts are, whatever you have in the bank, whatever you own, your home, that's what the government lets you have. That's really the mentality the Democrat Party has now. That it's almost as though... Yeah, we we're not a communist state, but there's all property is really property of the state. And then we just distribute it unequally, which is something they probably want to address at some point in the future, isn't it? It's concerning. Well, we're all in the Senate, uh, the Senate countdown here. I see the Democrats are all fired up, too, about how Trump has been saying he will likely take a a, quote, big hit on the tax plan. They're all saying, no, he won't. See, this is where at CNN, they're like, oh, my gosh, the president's such a liar. And everyone's like, who cares? We're, he's trying to sell it. He's a salesman. It's not real. There are lies and there are lies, right? The president's saying he's likely to take a big hit. You know, OK, maybe he won't take a big hit, but nobody cares, CNN. This is why, hey, you know, you get in prime time, three million people watching Fox, two and a half million people watching MSNBC and like 800,000 people watching CNN. There's a reason for it. Chris in California. What's up, Chris? Hello. Shields High. Shields High. Hey, Shields High. So we spoke last Friday, and we were discussing corporate tax rates. And I am much more in favor of the reduction. I know you're in favor, but I'm I'm more in favor. And along the way, you had mentioned, we were talking budget reconciliation, and you had mentioned that one of your big problems is that they're not cutting spending. Well, I was wrong. I was completely wrong, and I wanted to call and tell you that. Wait, wait, I wanted to hear this. You're telling me that, well, what were you saying? So, I was under the impression, the false impression, that in order to pass it using budget reconciliation, that pretty much everything had to stay the same. The revenues, the spending, everything had to be the same. Now, you could shuffle around where that money went, but the numbers had to be the same. 
And you had said that, you know, part of the problem with the bill is that they aren't cutting spending, which obviously I agree we do need to do. And that is what I was wrong about. I'm still firmly in favor of the corporate tax rate reduction, but I was completely wrong about their ability to cut spending using budget reconciliation. And I just wanted to man up, I guess, and let you know that you were right and I was wrong. Well, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate you being a stand-up guy about it. And I like your fire on the tax issue. You know, look, it's important, right? This is about your property. This is about your ability to provide for yourself if you got a family, your family, and and uh, and this does really matter. Uh, but yeah, you you know, I think it's it's important that we don't completely lose sight of the fact that spending. It, it, we're now in like a spending nirvana with the federal government. Everyone just spend, 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 spend. No one even talks about touching entitlements. No one even. How many people know? I mean, th- be honest with yourself that we went a, a, over a half a trillion more into debt this year. I think I think we had the highest tax receipts. I mean, you know, most tax uh, taken from people in American history. I think it was like three point three trillion or something like that. So, Chris, that's concerning, right? I mean, people say, "Oh, twenty trillion, we're okay." Is thirty trillion okay? Is is forty trillion okay? You know, at, at what point do, do we start crowding out other parts of the economy just by trying to service the debt we have? The moment interest rates rise, by the way, I feel like things are going to get wild. Oh, absolutely. I, I work in finance, which is part of the reason that I'm all about lowering taxes for everybody. Uh, but the spending is certainly an issue. And politically, which is another part of the conversation we had last week, politically, I mean, this tax cut is hard enough. You just read the numbers. It was 40%, 50% of people think their taxes go up. So what I'm hopeful that spending reductions are on the horizon at some point, although talking about a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill doesn't have to be promising for spending reductions. But if they didn't do it now, I could actually understand that as well, because as you pointed out, you know, the politics of this are very, very difficult. And if we were cutting taxes for the richest 1%, and at the same time cutting spending, I, I think the firestorm would be 10 times worse. So I 110% agree with you we need to cut spending, and I hope that they do something about it. I think that $20 trillion is an unfathomable number. People do not, they're not able to comprehend it, and so it doesn't mean very much to them. But eventually, especially as interest rates rise, which we've been seeing, they are going to start going up. And as you said, once the, the debt service becomes unmanageable, then what are we going to do? Then it's yeah, and, and, and the so problem with these rates. issues is that, as you know, uh, when everyone realizes a problem, it's kind of too late. Right? That's the, well, you know. exactly. I mean, that's kicking the can down the road, yeah. right? You've been doing it for years and years. I remember when, when George W. Bush doubled the, the debt from, what, 4 to $8 trillion, and Obama said that it was, was it immoral? Yeah, like it was to do that? unpatriotic or immoral. Yeah, he said all kinds yeah, of yeah, stuff. Unpatriotic, there you go. Yeah. And he doubled it from like 8 to 16, but that's completely patriotic. So we've yeah. got a politics problem. I hear you. Hey, Chris, thanks for the great call, man. Thank you for, uh, for calling in to uh, follow up. I appreciate that. See, he's a good guy. You know? Uh, maybe somebody else wants to call him and be like, you know, I think you were actually right about that shooting in Arizona, Buck. I thought your analysis was spot on, and I probably should have been a little bit more friendly. Just putting that out there. Oh, by the way, uh, there is also a follow-up from the story about that judge who was asked by a Republican. Do we, what was the judge's name, Tyrone? Do you remember the – I forget his name. That right? was uh, Senator Kennedy. Okay. No, no, but the, ju- uh, the, the guy who was up on the sta- – you know, who was getting questioned. I forget his name. Um, anyway – he was sitting there. They're like, "So, uh, have you ever, uh, have you ever handled a motion in court?" 
Have you ever tried a civil case? Have you ever tried a criminal case? Uh, do you know anything about the law? Uh, can you, in fact, read the first few pages of a legal textbook? Uh, would you be able to represent yourself on an episode of Judge Judy? I mean, he just kept going through this thing. And then the guy's answer was like, um, no, sir. No, no, no. <laughs> His name was Matthew Peterson. Matthew Peterson. I thought it was Peterson. Anyway, he had a rough time. You know, you, you think you're just going to get to be a federal judge. He had a rough time and he has withdrawn. The uh, The Internet era is unforgiving of things like that. So... Yeah. Hey, but in a sense, you know, in a sense, this is the way the process is supposed to work. I, we, we all say all these hearings, it feels like a rubber stamp sometimes, or there's all this grandstanding. But, you know, sometimes the Senate actually serves a useful purpose with this stuff where it's like, oh, OK, so this person's just really not qualified to do this job. It was a little snarky, though. I was hoping that my 20 years of service would overtake two bad minutes on the Internet. Oh, he said that. Yes, I as didn't. if he wasn't completely unqualified and incompetent. I think he. I think he was be clowned. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Accurate. He was. He was clowned. Well. Well. Uh, a bit huffy. I didn't know about that part. Thank you, Tyrone. So he's he stepped down from it. A um, little bit of an update on the Mueller probe. Want to get to that also? North Korea and uh, the cyber programs that they're running that affect anyone who's connected to the internet. So that's a problem for all of us. The Bombshell story yesterday. I'm just holding it because we wanted to wait till we get Jonathan Shanzer join us from FDD. I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts on it, too, but we're going to spend a good chunk on how Obama was like, whoa, hey, hey, U.S. law enforcement, DEA, back off of Hezbollah because we want to keep Iran happy. Think about that. That's that's pretty wow in a bad way. Um, anyway, we'll talk about the Mueller thing. And uh, how much longer is it going to go on? I'll give you the latest on that and that question right after the break. So I think it was a day ago that the storyline that the press was pushing on the Mueller probe was that uh, Trump was going to fire Mueller. And it was almost like they were they were daring him to fire Mueller. That became the, oh, you know, is, this, is Trump going to do this? Oh, Trump might do this. Oh. And, and Trump had said, and I played the audio of the president on this show trump had said i'm not gonna fire him he said it kind of like that too you know it's not gonna happen but they're still raising it all the time a lot of you know think pieces in the media are often just an excuse for making stuff up and writing it and putting it out there right so you know i'm just doing i'm just doing a think piece on you know what it would look like if uh, donald trump uh, became a fascist and uh, destroyed america it's just a think piece i mean you know i don't don't need any sources for it uh Today, the storyline is that the Mueller probe may go on for another year. That's what there's. That's what the different sources out there are saying. I see here Vanity Fair reporting on this, and and a whole bunch of others, and they're wondering you know, what that will mean in terms of his response. And what I would just say is, it doesn't doesn't really mean anything in terms of the president's response. There was all, you know, I don't know how much this reporting is true, how much of this is just rumor intelligence, so to speak, that's out there. Uh, just meandering on uh, with whatever people in D.C. are saying. But there was a storyline that Trump was having his Trump's lawyers met with the Mueller people and he thought they might exonerate him or something. Right now, was that true? I don't know. 
who who are the sources? Who knows? And I think at this point, you have to take a a lot of there's a lot of salt that you must take with many of these allegations, accusations, news stories, all of it, right? And on the Mueller probe, I would just note that what has it brought us this past year? What have we, uh, what, what has the Mueller probe shown us? Nothing. It's been going on for months and months and months. And there is nothing from that probe that we can point to and say, well, isn't this a good idea? Aren't we glad we knew that? All of the prosecutions that it had, or the charges that have come from it so far, the prosecutions haven't been completed yet, are for Mickey Mouse stuff. It's slowing down the administration. It's definitely a hindrance to Trump. And therefore, if you believe, as I do, and I'm sure almost all of you listening do as well, except for you one or two crazy libs out there who like to just listen in as some form of you know, driving yourself crazy. But hey, welcome to the hut. If you believe that President Trump is doing good things for the country, there that means that people who are standing in his way with political nonsense like the Mueller probe are hurting the country. That this is actually damaging. That this is not just an exercise in fact-finding, but an exercise in sabotage via prosecution or sabotage via investigation. That's what I think it is. So this does not come without cost. And I don't just mean the millions of taxpayer dollars that go into it. I mean what this does to the agenda, what this does to the function uh, functions of the White House that really could help people. You know, that could help you uh, get further ahead in your career, pay some bills and have a sense of uh, optimism and prosperity. Right. That's that would all be really good stuff. Uh, Carl in Virginia. Welcome, sir. Hey, how you doing this evening, Buck? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. I- yeah, uh, you were talking about the uh, deficit and the budget. One of the things I hope uh, President Trump brings in the next uh, year or two is uh, more of a business mindset to uh, the government um, as far as their spending practices because having... My mom was government, my dad was Air Force, I was in the Army, so we saw it at all different levels. Was They act like, that. Uh, oh, it's an uh, open well, and especially get towards the end of the year, we have this money we have to spend. You know, they don't act like it's their own. Yeah, of course. In fact, in a lot of government agencies and contracts and things, if you don't spend it, you get less the next year. So there's, yeah, a, there's exactly. a built-in that's- incentive to spend money that you shouldn't spend that's taxpayer money. Yeah. And there's uh, one other point on the last night you were talking about Judge Rory Moore, and you made a reference to how uh, he was like a Japanese soldier in hiding. I know one well-known case was back in 72 or 73, there was an imperial Japanese soldier who they had sightings of, and he was in the Philippine Islands. And they used a uh, psychological, you know, loudspeakers and stuff and brought people from Japan, and he finally came out of hiding then, and that was in 72 or 73. So there was a confirmed case, you're telling me. Okay. Right, oh, yeah, that was well-known, yeah. Yeah, I got, I'll check that one out. All right, man. Well, thank you very much for calling in, Carl. I appreciate it. Shields high to you, sir. Uh, yeah, I got to Had you heard about that on the, the island? I mean, people always talk about the Japanese soldier that's still on the island, like, ready to fight, you know, 20 years later or whatever. But I, I, I didn't know if that was actually a, 
that it actually happened. You know, it's like people always say Napoleon was really short. False. People were actually just shorter then. You know, these people don't know stuff. I hear the rumors and sometimes I hear like the guy is taking a wife, but he still like thinks he has to fight. It's weird. And he still goes out there to fight every day, but he's like living a normal life behind the scenes. I've really heard stories like that. Just because we're talking about the subject of someone left behind it makes me think of uh, the movie Last Samurai, which is a very well shot, very poorly written screenplay, <laughs> in my opinion. He's the only guy who survives two battles, and he becomes like a super samurai in about two months. But other than that, you know, good movie, I guess. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. After careful investigation, the United States is publicly attributing the massive WannaCry cyber attack to North Korea. We do not make this allegation lightly. We do so with evidence, and we do so with partners. That was a a revelation that I think many people uh, are not surprised by, but nonetheless is deeply concerning. White House Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert wrote in a Wall Street Journal earlier this week, and that was him speaking there, that the uh, WannaCry ransomware virus from back in May that caused billions of dollars of damage and was essentially a virus that would seize control of computers, including, I believe, hospitals in the U.K., uh, their computer systems, and demanding Bitcoin as payment, that, that North Korea was behind that. Now, I understand that in the pop culture world we live in, there's a lot of mocking of North Korea's technological inferiority, and there have even been some parody Twitter accounts created about how you know Kim Jong-il is still so excited about his new VHS recorder that he got and all that. I, I understand that that's out there. But understand this, that at the top levels of that government, they still have substantial resources, and they play by their own rules. They do not care. There is nothing that is out of bounds for them if they think it is going to serve their very narrow interests. And that includes all kinds of criminal activity around the world. As long as the North Korean regime, as long as Kim Jong-un believes that there is a way to make money, he's basically fine with it. Because there's nothing that he can really do short of maybe trying to, I don't know, engage in massive uh, currency duplication, counterfeiting. That would be an act of war financially that would actually get a war to his doorstep. So if that, if that, with that in mind, cyber war and cyber warfare, especially for criminal profit, is going to become an increasingly Serious problem. I mean, it, it, it already is an issue, but it is going to get worse. And North Korea does not just operate on its own territory when it comes to this as well. Um, there are concerns that North Korea has elite hacker units that operate off of its own soil. So uh, this now means that our idea of boxing in North Korea our idea of locking them into a state where they are just going to be, essentially the regime will will shrivel and and won't be able to continue on, doesn't take into account, one, the smuggling across the border, and two, uh, that they will engage in 
all kinds of criminal activity, illicit black market activity. Uh, so this is something that I, I think needs to be factored in when we talk about what we're going to do with, uh, with North Korea. And Bureau 121 is the North Korean Cyber Warfare Agency. And it is a, a clandestine, it has, does clandestine operations and is, is not just aggressive, but also is uh, much more capable than I think a lot of people recognize. And what do you do if you have somebody who is, you know, all you need really is an internet terminal, right? What do you do if you have people who are operating under the nor- under uh, North Korean direction in rogue states or regimes where it doesn't matter if we find out who they are, there's not going to be any extradition. So this is a this is a, a big problem, a big concern, and just the whole notion of ransomware, I think, is going to get a lot worse. Cyber spending has been uh, coming up, uh, has been raised substantially in in recent years, and uh, we will have to see if uh, the North Koreans, if there's a way to stop them, effectively stop them from doing this. But you know, the the Sony, remember the Sony Pictures hack? That was North Korea. These guys are a menace, and. It's not just about cutting off oil reserves and hoping that we will uh, somehow find a way, um, somehow uh, find a way to make their economy collapse. It's it's already operating largely in black markets and in the dark and on the dark web. And, uh, this is just an added layer of complexity. All right, I, I want to talk to you about the Hezbollah situation that has come to light because of Politico's reporting. It's a bombshell report, and it's really, you should obviously listen to what we're about to talk about here, but if you get the chance tomorrow or you know this weekend, uh, read that piece, because when you see the details, it just feels like there was very little that the Obama administration, the President Obama himself, was not willing to concede or even sell out to make Iran happy. This wasn't even like a, a horse trade in the sense that we didn't even have to get anything. I mean, Obama wasn't saying, I'll back off Hezbollah, but you'll do this really important thing for me. He was saying, I'll back off Hezbollah because I don't want to upset the Iranians because I want them to sign this deal. Oh, OK. It just goes to show you that the Iranians had all the leverage in the world, even though Obama, because of the United States and the U.S. military, had a winning hand going into those negotiations. So that's coming up in just a moment. Stay with me for that. So just how much was President Obama willing to trade away in order to get that hopelessly flawed nuclear deal? Well, we found out, courtesy of an investigation by Politico, that it might have even included backing off of a vicious Shia terrorist group, Shia Islamic terrorist group known as Hezbollah, uh, to walk us through this incredible story and, and the implications of it for the uh, for the Trump administration. Now we've got J- Dr. Jonathan Shanzer on the line. He is a senior vice president at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Also got a piece in the New York Post: How Trump can repair the damage from Obama's narco terror fail. Uh, Jonathan, great to have you back. Thanks, Buck. All right, can you just tell everybody what happened here with this uh, political investigation? What have we found out about Hezbollah and the actions of the Obama administration toward that group? Sure. Well, I think first it's incredibly important to point out here that Hezbollah is 
probably the prized asset of Iran, that it, uh, Hezbollah is it's probably its most, most lethal terrorist organization. They sink uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into Hezbollah every year. And uh, recently, they've expanded from Lebanon into Syria, for example, where they're fighting on behalf of the Assad regime. And, and now we've learned that they have this expansive drug uh, network that stretches as, as far as Latin America. Now, uh, fast forward to 2015, uh, when the nuclear deal is signed. Now, uh, the lead up to that was incredibly delicate for President Obama. Uh, he was trying to give the Iranians everything that they could possibly ask for because he, quite frankly, did not want to go to war with Iran over its nuclear program. He was desperate to get, uh, to get a deal done. And so there was one concession after another. The most famous, of course, being that we provided the Iranians with about $150 billion in sanctions relief. Some of that came in the form of cash on pallets by way of unmarked aircraft. And now we find out through this uh, remarkable story by Josh Meyer at Politico that, uh, that Obama actually instructed the U.S. government to back off of Hezbollah for fear of upsetting Iran. This is astonishing. And by the way, if it wasn't written in Politico, I think you would have seen a lot of the left-wing media come out against this and say that it was conspiracy theory, that there's no way, it's crazy. But I, I'm not seeing a lot of pushback on this. I didn't even see, although it might have happened, any tweets from uh, former Obama official Ben Rhodes saying, oh, you guys have got this all wrong. So far, it sounds like this is what happened, which would mean that Obama was telling the DOJ, hey, that international terrorist group that's involved in narco smuggling and weapons trafficking and all that stuff, why don't you leave them alone? Because I don't want the mullahs in Tehran to be upset with me. I really need this nuke deal. That's right. And I, I actually I think it's even worse than that because the well, I thought uh, that was pretty bad. How is it no, worse? No, it's, it's bad. But but now um, now just think for a moment that you've got Hezbollah running cocaine to places in the United States and to places like Europe. And Obama is telling his uh, his, his narco team, this group called Project Cassandra, which was basically spearheaded by the D.E.A., he dismantles this program. So what he's basically saying is, let's let Hezbollah continue to get wealthy off of drugs that they sell to the West in order to get this deal done. And so you really get a sense of how bad this is. And you're right, we're not hearing uh, protests, at least not yet, from uh, what we call the echo chamber of, uh, of former Obama officials. It'll be interesting to see whether they mount a comeback. But so far, it really has been bit players trying to challenge this on the margins this does look like it happened. And maybe one other postscript here is we have talked at FTD, we have talked to people who were part of Project Cassandra, and they are openly uh, talking about this. They have been seething for a long time, and they were finally apparently able to get uh, uh, Josh Meyer over Politico to write it up. Speaking of Jonathan Shanzer, who's a VP over at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, before we move on to uh, one other topic in the Mideast, I want to ask you about Jonathan I thought that it got not nearly enough attention that in President Trump's national security strategy, there was specific mention or specific uh, citation of, of Hezbollah. I feel like this administration is gearing up for at least confronting Hezbollah, not necessarily militarily, but tackling this challenge in 2018. How do you think that's a, a, a fair read? And, and how would they do that, assuming they do it? 
Well, I think it is a fair read, and I think you, we all need to understand that Hezbollah is a core part of Iran's regional strategy. In other words, as we see the collapse of ISIS in places like Iraq and Syria, you're going to see a vacuum, and that vacuum right now is most likely to be filled by Shiite militias, uh, and so that would include Hezbollah, but also about 20 other groups, some of whom are already identified as, as terrorist organizations, some of whom probably are, are not known to most people in the United States or even the national security establishment. But what we're hearing right now from the Trump administration is it is time to push back on this. So you sort of think about it in kind of historic terms. Yeah, we had to defeat the Nazis first, but then came the Cold War. This is what's about to happen in Iraq and Syria, that once ISIS is finally dislodged, the next challenge is going to be the Iran network, and Hezbollah is going to play a huge role in that. What can, we, what can the Trump administration do? What should they do in order to uh, counteract this phenomenon that's happening right now of really Shia extremist uh, resurgence across the Middle East? Well, this is the question that I think everyone is asking now. And, you know, obviously the sort of Trump doctrine uh, is about not putting boots on the ground, not getting into expensive battles um, and battles that you can't win. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, not, it's about not ceding ground to terrorist states like, like Iran. So what that means is unclear to me. I think there's going to be a financial battle, no doubt, that we'll see sanctions start to ramp up. I think we're going to start to see more actions like we saw with uh, Nikki Haley at the United Nations. She was calling out a different Shiite militia that's based in Yemen called the Houthis. She did that last week. I would not be surprised to see more international coalition building uh, with regard to Hezbollah. Uh, I think we might even see the Arab states start to get more into the act here in, try, in terms of trying to pressure Hezbollah. But I do wonder what will happen if and when these Shiite militias do take over large swaths of Iraq and, uh, and, and Syria. What kinds of options will be left that, you know, that, that preclude kinetic activities, that, that, that preclude military strikes? I'm just not sure what that strategy might look like. Speaking of military strikes, and we, we transitioned into this just naturally because it's what's, it's what's happening now with these Shia uh, militants. Uh, you mentioned the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, there was a, another missile. I mean, what was it, a few weeks ago, a missile was fired toward uh, Riyadh International Airport from Yemen. The Saudis, I believe, shot it down. That was the report. And now I saw today another missile fired. Now, we don't have to worry about the Saudis engaging in airstrikes against Yemen in response because they've been engaging in a lot of airstrikes against Yemen for quite a while. But w this seems like quite an escalation because the Saudis are now coming out saying these are Iranian missiles being fired at Saudi Arabia by a proxy of Iran, a Shia Houthi militia in Yemen. That's right. And, and I will tell you this, that uh, what Nikki Haley said uh, at that press conference where she was standing in front of that Houthi uh, rocket that was supplied by Iran, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. What we have heard from administration officials is that, uh, that Iran is crawling all over Yemen. And uh, it's for this reason that the, the Saudis have been uh, so uh, mobilized, the Emiratis have been mobilized, uh, the Bahrainis, uh, you know, I mean, really all the Sunni uh, Gulf Arab states have been outraged over this, and it's right in their backyard. And so it, what's, what's sort of remarkable here is that what the Houthis are doing by, uh, with Iranian help and training is really what Hamas and Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad have been doing to the Israelis for a long time. So you see that they're taking a page out of their own playbook and really wreaking havoc across the region. 
And this is the real concern that the Trump administration has, that Iran is expanding, that through its proxy networks, it is just lighting the Middle East on fire. And of course, you know, when you talk about how this happened, how they're able to do it, a lot of people point right back to that 2015 flawed nuclear deal that gave Iran $150 billion to start to fund its terrorist proxies around the region. One more for you, Jonathan, before we let you go. Uh, how realistic is the threat of an open declared war between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the next 18 months? I think it's hard to put a, a percentage on it. Uh, but you worry about it, though. You know, I mean, I know you, you know no one can predict the future, but is that a real concern, or are we still is that is that too far off, too remote to be a worry? It's it's far off, but I will say this: that we are on pace for a conflict. In other words, the the, the rhetoric that we're seeing out of Saudi Arabia, the responses that we're seeing out of Iran, the uh, the emboldened behavior of Iran in, in in the sense that they're willing to allow the Houthis to fire their rockets into Saudi airspace. This is the kind of thing that the Saudis will not will not suffer lightly. The only question is how comfortable are they with their own military capabilities? This is, I think, the only thing holding the Saudis back. And I would argue that what they're doing in Yemen right now is honing their skills. They're testing their weapons, and they're going to see how far they could take it if they wanted to. Jonathan Shanzer is a senior vice president at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. You can check out all of their research and publications at defenddemocracy.org. Jonathan, always great to have you, man. Happy holidays. Have a great new year. We'll talk to you in 2018. Sounds good. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be switching gears a lot in these last few days of shows. I, I want to talk to you about uh, farmers and the challenges facing American farm communities and skyrocketing rates of depression and suicide. We've got an expert to weigh in on that. We'll also talk about the surveillance state in China and then uh, talk about universities, college universities. They're, they're finally feeling the heat from the fact that the public thinks that they're not really doing a lot in the way of educating sometimes and a whole lot of political indoctrination. Uh, and then we will get into Team Buck Speaks, which I'm still thinking about the ways in which we can come up with a new and exciting uh, way to brand that segment. So, big third hour coming up. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK if you would like to call in. And for those of you who are listening on uh, either a delay or if you're listening to uh, the iHeart On Demand or on the podcast on i on uh, iTunes. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is a great way to let us know what you think of the show. And also, uh, please tell your friends. Back right after this break. Stay with me. The American farmer is not often uh, a focus of attention in our media. Uh, but there is a growing problem among our farmers, and it has to do with Depression and suicide rates. Selena Zito is a New York Post columnist and co-author of the upcoming book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. She wrote a piece that really caught my eye, Why Depression and Suicide Are Rampant Among American Farmers. I want to talk to her about it. Selena, thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I know this time of year for such a, a serious and solemn piece, uh, we're going to the holidays, but I, I think that it's, it's important topic. And I wanted to take some time today to allow you to explain to everybody what's happening with American farmers and, and how that impacts American uh, farm communities with with widespread depression, even more so than in other high stress occupations. Yeah, so. 
The, the study, we're actually behind because the study was conducted in 2012 by the CDC, and it wasn't released, and the data was not released in 2016. So, and, 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 and based on the interview that I did with Dr. Jeffrey Men, he says it's only increased um, since then. But the problem is sort of multifaceted in that uh, farmers are more isolated. Uh, farmers uh, than the general population. Uh, they they were their sort of their income is is not in control by them. So no matter how hard they work. There's what they get in return um, in terms of their uh, money is is out of their control. It depends on commodities. It depends on weather. It depends on people's buying habits. You know, all of that plays into it. And so, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty. And while American people, I think, generally understand that farmers are hard workers, I think what they don't think about is the amount of bureaucratic red tape and paperwork that is part of not just like their yearly life. It's part of their daily life. And, you know, I I, I was um, visiting with several farmers, you know, in Pennsylvania and Ohio. I I focused on Wisconsin in the story. But, you know, the, the stack of paperwork that they have to do is astronomical. I mean, wait. I farmers have to do have this. To, this is new to me, actually. Farmers have to do a, a lot of paperwork. Yeah, a lot of government paperwork um, in terms of staying um, in compliant with uh, the government, and it's just it's just staggering when you think about it. Now, depression period is up in the American. Um, uh, population, but it is more so in rural areas and more even the most among farmers. But what came, the, the professions that came after farming were construction, manufacturing, um, you know, people that worked with their hands and also people that have been the most uncertain in the economy since, uh, you know, I would argue since World War II. So, in, during World War II, sort of everyone was on the same level playing field. A farmer or someone who was making the steel for a battleship or a tank or, you know, contributing to the war effort. Everyone was on the same playing field. You were as important as the person in Washington and or New York than if you were on a farm in Wisconsin or if you were working at a steel mill in Pittsburgh. But after the sort of big boom of building um, during after post-World War II, that began to separate. And that is where this disconnect that we have seen across the country really just started to inch forward. And we, we ignored it. We ignored it then. We ignored it in the 70s and 80s. And finally, it caught up with us. Uh, beginning in 2006, when we started having these sort of loud, fluctuating midterm elections that, you know, sort of peaked with a populist election of the president. We're speaking to Selena Zito about her column in the New York Post, Why Depression and Suicide Are Rampant Among American Farmers. And uh, you had a, a line in here, Selena, that people should just be reminded of, that farmers take their lives more often than people in any other occupation in the country, including the military. Uh, so yeah. 
that because we you know we we hear the terrible statistic about uh, the lives lost to uh, to suicide because of depression and, and PTSD on a daily basis in the military community. We think farmers take their lives more than people, including in the military, on a per capita basis. I, that's just staggering. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even. You know, when I first looked at the data about about farmers, I was just stunned. I think it was eighty four point five out of per, per one hundred thousand, right? And I thought, wow, that's crazy. And then I started looking at the other occupations underneath it, and I'm like, wow, well, you know, they don't have military built into this list. So I went over and looked at the next, uh, the latest study by the VA, and it was almost. It was like under, just under or just over, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, a half of the number of farmers. And the other thing that Dr. Men sort of pointed out to me was that, you know, he said, look, we, you don't always capture all the suicides either. There's, you know, people can have an, you know, quote, accident with their shotgun. They can have an accident with one of their, uh, you know, their farming equipment. And, you know, that that could be, a, you know, a sort of uh, a suicide that that is not even counted. But, Selena, this uh, this plague that we're talking about here of, of depression and suicide among uh, farmers and in the farming community, what can be done uh, to alleviate this? What are is this a is there a policy issue here that could be addressed out of D.C.? Uh, is there is this just a function of. You know, big agra and mechanized farming and and the slow extinction of the individual family-owned farm. I mean, what are the dynamics here that could be addressed to fix what's going on? Actually, this this is also a number that really, really stunned me. The number of people, the number of farms in this country, 97% of them are owned by uh, farming families. So the family farm is still alive and well. It's the disconnect in our culture and our society that is the biggest plague. And, and, you know, it's, it's not any different in the conversations that I've had with you on, on this show about people in, uh, you know, in the Rust Belt or in small towns or in even mid-sized towns where culture has separated in those towns from the sort of popular culture of our society, which comes out of places like New York and, and Hollywood and, and, and Washington, D.C. And, and that disconnect, like those, you know, like the other people that are, feel disconnected from society, it is just even more pronounced in the farming community. And the other thing is, is that, so, it used to be that churches and, and, you know, community centers were the hub of farming communities. What's re- that is not so much the case anymore. And what's replaced it is local sports, you know, high school sports. And while, you know, cheering for your team is wonderful and, you know, great and a sense of pride, but that doesn't give you the same sense of community that church does. And, and the um, Dr. Men pointed out to me, because there's a lot of, he's in the Driftless area in western uh, Wisconsin, he said, you know, we have a large Amish community here. And he said in his 37 years of practice, he's only seen one suicide among the Amish. And I said, well, why is that? It's because they're so clannish? He goes, no, because they believe in God. And they know you're not going to get to God if you get rid of yourself. And, you know, there's that sense that you have to, you have to be accountable for your 
actions. And the other thing he says that the Amish are really good at doing is neighboring. They, they close their businesses up early on Thursday and they go out and they just go and visit with other members of the community. So community is uh, a really, have. really big part of this then. Uh, Selena, yeah. we, we have to leave it there for this time around, but I would really encourage everybody to check out uh, her piece on the New York Post, Why Depression and Suicide are Rampant Among American Farmers, and also her upcoming book, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Selena Zito, great to have you back, Selena. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We didn't even get to talk about the fact that uh, my understanding is John Deere Corporation has made tens of billions of dollars of loans to farmers so that they can keep buying mechanized equipment. Those are loans they will never be able to pay back, and it keeps getting deeper and deeper, that hole. Something to talk about for another time. Um, We're going to switch gears here, though, in uh, just a moment. So when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about China instead of American farmers. What's going on with the surveillance state there? Fascinating stuff. Stay with me. North Korea gets a lot of attention from the news media these days. I feel like we haven't spoken about China in some time, except with regard to trade deals, bad trade deals. Uh, We're not focused at all. And when I mean we, I mean the news media and those in this country that are paying attention to these kinds of things. We're not focused on the expansion into the South China Sea uh, that Beijing has been engaged in for quite some time. Uh, We are not looking at internal dynamics in China from a a political and security perspective that could have enormous implications for its economic future. I mean, I remember, uh, and I, I just always have to keep this in mind to try and put the uh, the Chinese expansion and growth miracle into a a realistic context. I remember in the nineties, in the early nineties, there was a fear in this country that the Japanese were going to overtake us economically, buy up all kinds of U.S. land and corporations, and would effectively control us. And this was a a kind of limited xenophobia, really. I mean, it was, uh, I think, well exaggerated at the time. Uh, But nonetheless, right now, we know that the only near-peer civilizational competitor to the United States is China. And we should keep an eye on what's going on internally in that country so that we can understand the policies that we do focus on, like trade and Trump talking about getting better trade deals with uh, Xi Jinping. But I saw this piece in the Wall Street Journal, 12 Days in Xinjiang, How China's Surveillance State Overwhelms Daily Life. And I would really recommend it to all of you. It is fascinating. It's by Josh Chin and Clement Burge. And this piece was incredible. It talks about uh, Xinjiang province mostly, which for those who don't know, Xinjiang is... If you're in China and you're looking at a map of China and you go to the far west of the country where it borders uh, Kazakhstan, that's Xinjiang province. And it's where you find the uh, ethnic minority known as the Uyghurs. And the Uyghurs are of high security interest to the Chinese government because they are Muslims and they do not fit in 
with the uh, cultural dictates and and political uh, dictates that come along with it from the Communist Party in, in Beijing. And there have been some terrorist attacks in recent years, nothing on the scale of a 9-11, but uh, mass stabbings, most notably. And the Chinese government is, well, already it's a police state, but even for a police state, they have cracked down tremendously. And this piece, 12 Days in Xinjiang, gives you a sense of just how thorough and, yes, truly Orwellian that crackdown is. Uh, for example, these these two journalists who are traveling around talk about the ways that uh, the Chinese authorities try to monitor people in this province, and it's just endless. You have location trackers on that are mandatory on all commercial vehicles. Iris scanners and other advanced ID technology are used at a lot of checkpoints. They... Uh, use voice pattern analysis at checkpoints and in other security measures as well. The police carry around smartphone scanners that can look over your smartphone to try to see if you have any encrypted apps or, or any content that they find problematic, right? If you have videos that are forbidden, we, we often, I think, lose sight of the fact that sure china is nowhere near as bad as north korea but it is a police state and it is absolutely not a place where individuals have any rights uh and it has much better technology and much greater resources to monitor obviously it's tremendous tremendously large citizenry than uh, north korea does at least better technology uh, when you start to expand out Chinese surveillance efforts over a billion or so people versus the 30 million or so in North Korea, I don't know how much technology can make up for when dealing with a mass of that size. But anyway, the Chinese are on lockdown in Xinjiang province. And like I said, smartphone scanners, uh, they have ID scanners that police carry around with them. And this was the, the one bit that I found particularly fascinating. If you buy a knife, they mark it with a QR code, any knife, butcher knife, chef knife, a QR code that includes your ID number and other personal information. They do ID stamping for knives. So just keep that in mind. The next time someone in this country says, what are they going to do, ban knives next? Well, they may not ban them in this country, but they they may, you know, we could get to a place where the government's going to know who every knife belongs to, and the Chinese are already doing that, at least in Xinjiang province. Now, you may be wondering, okay, well, why do the Chinese care so much about what happens with only about a population of, oh, what is it, about 30, 30 million or so Uyghurs? Remember, those are ethnic Muslims uh, who are out in the steppe in the western part of China along the border, like I said, with, with Kazakhstan and uh, Mongolia, and uh, it goes up into where, you you know, India to the kind of southwest. So it's in the far, really northwestern corner of China. And the, the part of this that gets the Chinese's attention is, yes, you have this restive Muslim separatist uh, movement, and there, are, there have been Uyghur terrorist attacks, as I mentioned, and then there's also 
the hope that Xi Jinping has to reestablish a massive trade route, really using the old ancient spice routes dating back to the days of Marco Polo, that would go west overland through China, through the stands to Europe. And given the advances in you know, high-speed rail and better road technology and everything else, this is a dream that Xi Jinping has for the future. They're saying that he's going to invest a trillion. He wants the Chinese government to invest a trillion dollars in this initiative. But that passageway goes right through Xinjiang province and its ethnic Muslim minority. Uh, so that's why the Chinese have it so on lockdown. And then you also add into it the other uh, disparate uh, identity sensibilities inside of China, which we think of China as monolithic, but there are other groups in China that are not Han Chinese and do not necessarily uh, like the way the central government is treating them or uh, or views their role in the future of China. Any separatist movement in China is considered a threat to Chinese territorial integrity. And you can imagine how upset they get over Taiwan, which they have not controlled in many decades, uh, if they actually had Chinese mainland territory that tried to secede, it would be a, well, who, who knows where that would go? It would be a nightmare for them. But the real point here that I wanted to make is just that the Chinese, we are seeing uh, a full spectrum and advanced, right? This is a difference with, with what North Korea has, although you probably saw that North Korea now is being blamed for uh, the recent global, ran- a recent global ransomware attack. That's pretty advanced stuff. But the Chinese are taking their resources, their technology, and creating a totalitarian surveillance state that is way beyond anything we've seen anywhere else in the past. And it's it's going to have some, like I said, we don't know what it means for the future, but we know it's going to mean something. So I just like to keep an eye on these things. I do recommend, if you have a chance, just read this piece, 12, 12 Days in Xinjiang in the Wall Street Journal. All right, team, I want to talk to you about colleges. I want to make fun of them a little bit. You'll like that. Stay with me. As a general rule, I don't like to take any pleasure in the misery and downfall of others. But I think that colleges and universities, they could be taken down a few pegs. Would probably be a a good thing for the Harvards and Yales of the world to have to deal a bit more in Reality, And that's what I saw some glimmer of in this piece in Politico on education. And it's basically pulling together a bunch of different university presidents who are saying, we've been blindsided or they've been blindsided. And their concern is that, well, is several fold. First of all, that people start to think that these loony left wing institutions That have, in some cases, and I do not exaggerate because it was the case at my own college, Amherst, more socialists and self-described communists on the faculty than open Republicans, uh, that the public has caught on to this. And this is problematic. And their lack of intellectual diversity and their complete devotion to all other kinds of diversity, primarily racial, but also uh, gender diversity, not just meaning male and female, as you know, there are now 27 genders that are on offer at Harvard for incoming first years, not freshmen, 
You couldn't fish me, man. It's like you're boxing me in, like, fresh man, not even fresh woman. It's like fresh person, but even personhood confers a certain limitation of the full fulfillment of the self. This is, I mean, I feel like I could actually just quote that and put it in some kind of doctoral thesis on the uh, on gender studies in 2017 and I'd probably get a pretty decent grade uh, because it is nonsense and they're teaching nonsense and they've become factories that are churning out uh, dogmatic progressives who don't really understand not only the history of their own arguments they, they have no real understanding of the origins of American progressivism it's amazing how many smug and smarmy liberals come right out of college and right out of university and don't have the faintest idea of the origins of these beliefs that they have. They just know that that's what smart people think. You know, what do they know about climate change? That's what smart people think. Why are they pro-choice? Because that's what smart people say. You know, they don't understand the basics. They don't understand the history because they're not taught it and they don't care to learn. They also certainly don't understand the arguments from the other side. But this political piece gets even beyond the concerns over the uh, lack of continued institutional reverence that these universities are, you know, they're worried that it's slipping away. Often in the Trump era, one of the big discussions has been well he's eroding support for institutions or he's he's undermining our hallowed institutions whether it's democracy or the fbi or the intel community or the judiciary or whatever we're also seeing a a change in perceptions about university level uh, college level education and we should because they aren't ideologically diverse and it's an embarrassment The product isn't worth the price. And any study of what it costs to go to college 30 years ago, and I mean to go to Harvard 30 years ago, versus what it costs to go to Harvard today in terms of how many hours. Here's a good way to gauge it. How many hours would you have had to work at a minimum wage job or summer jobs in the 1960s versus how many hours you'd have to work at a Uh, minimum wage or low wage job today and it goes from yeah you're you could pay off your college loans pretty quickly you could even save up by working a job and pay off school while you were in school to you're going to be working a minimum minimum wage job for the next hundred years and not pay off your loans i mean it's just insane how expensive these schools are i mean the top tier is basically fifty thousand dollars a year now in tuition for four years that's a lot of money And some of these places, because they realize that the costs are just out of control, have taken to offering a lot of need-blind, full-tuition scholarships, which on its face is a a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that anybody who qualifies can go. But keep in mind that there are a lot of families that are middle class families that are saving up money. And especially if they don't fit into a protected category, if they're just like a white middle class kid from the Midwest and they want to go to Harvard, you know, they got to take out loans. So that creates an interesting dynamic, doesn't it? And maybe the family saved 20 or 30 grand for college, but the rest of it's on loans and on that student to pay. So, you know, there's a lot of issues with that as well. 
But what I think is, is fascinating is that they also now realize that they're not these standalone institutions that don't have any government largesse whatsoever. The change in the tax code that we're seeing right now could impact some of the very biggest schools endowments. And oh, by the way, any changes as have been discussed to the way that individuals can deduct charitable giving to colleges and universities, that also would have an enormous impact on these schools' bottom lines. Remember, you get to give to a university, which is a leftist indoctrination factory, and get to write that off as charitable giving. When these institutions are paying certainly bureaucrats and administrators pretty fat cat salaries uh, and have amazing benefits and uh, advantages for being involved in the institution, for being paid by it, and the tax code rewards them. And that doesn't have to stay that way. Look, I don't have the time to get into it in full detail today, but it, it it is time now for a radical rethink of the four-year undergraduate degree as some kind of necessary step in becoming a functioning and economically competitive adult in this country, uh, which, look, I know that's not true. There are plenty of you listening who are uh, high school grads or didn't even finish high school and have gone on to very successful careers. But that's the point. Colleges create this atmosphere where they try to convince everybody, oh, you have to go to a four-year school, and a lot of people get caught up in that. And we just need to, as a, as a culture, as a society, move away from this. We don't need everybody spending four years studying English. Uh, we would be much better off, I think, first of all, taking a gap year for everybody, maybe two, to work, to serve, uh, to just grow up a bit. And then maybe two years of school and then a third if necessary for certain degrees or majors. But condensing the four years into two, I got all kinds of ideas about this. The current system is problematic politically and also with a trillion dollars of outstanding student loan debt. It is not sustainable. And the colleges, the universities are figuring this out. All right. We'll come back with Team Buck Speaks right after this break. I can't believe that we are three days away from our last live show here in the Freedom Hut of 2017. I'm going to try to save the sappy, nostalgic stuff for Friday, but get ready for that because it's coming, team. Uh, But I'm amazed at how quickly this period has gone by. I was speaking to some of the folks uh, I work with behind the scenes here on radio earlier this week. Uh, And they kept saying, well, you know, now that we have our first year pretty much in the books, and I'm like, it's been a year? It's amazing when I think about it. And and then I go back to I've been in media since 2011, so it'll be my seventh year in the media business coming up in, well, technically in June, but in this new year. And, yeah, time is flying. But I will, like I said, hold off on – Sending you all big high fives and hugs, whichever you prefer. In this day and age, I feel like we all have to ask, right? Team, I can't, I can't just assume that we can hug it out. We might only be allowed to do high fives. Uh, and, and that's wh- whichever you prefer is fine. I've had this situation a few times. I have some 
very dear friends in the media business, including a, a bunch at Fox News. And when I've been over there and seen uh, them in the hallway, once or twice they've gone, uh, can we, because we've been hugging each other for years when we see each other, and it's now uh, a Christmas hug. Is that okay? Uh, you know, have a great holiday. And the answer has always been yes, but we, we have to laugh because, you know, the, the boundaries feel like they're being a little bit redrawn. So you can take a high five or a hug or just, a, you know, a, a cool nonchalant thumbs up, you know, thumbs up team. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll get more into that on, on Friday. Team Buck Speaks is up now. I don't know. Do you like the name Team Buck Speaks team or should I think about changing it up? I was uh, toying with the possibility of it maybe being, you know, Team Buck lights it up or something like that. So I'm I'm thinking about it. You know, I want to make sure that this branded segment of the show where it's really all of you carrying the uh, carrying the the content load um, that you think it's a cool. it, It sounds appropriate to what we're trying to do here. So. I thought about Team Buck Muster, but it sounds too much like like mustard on the radio. Like I'm telling you all that this is where we discuss yellow condiments for sausages and hot dogs and hamburgers, right? Team Buck Muster. Uh, I know you know what muster means, but it doesn't really translate on radio all that well. Uh, Team Buck Assemble. That would be strange because it's at the end of the show. So to yell out, assemble, now go home. You know, it's like a weird game, as Simon says. So anyway, here's here's what we got on Team Buck Speaks for now. This one from Jeff. Hey, Buck, just want to offer a Merry Christmas to all three of you who make the Buck Sexton show the best radio show out there. And Miss Molly, I am OSS, original Saturday squad and a former uh, fellow former Intel analyst. I used to download your show way back when and would listen to it on the drive to work uh, from when you were on Saturdays. Still pretty much listen every day to the podcast now. Looking forward to the history show. Sounds like Battle of Hastings should be a great candidate for the show. Just as a side note, I heard you say on Monday's podcast that you have to entertain Miss Molly over the holidays. If I may offer a suggestion from someone who will be very happily married for 23 years, I would phrase it, I am lucky that I get to entertain Miss Molly over the holiday season. Just a suggestion. I look forward to everything you guys produce in the coming year. Shields high. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, Much obliged to have you with me from the original Saturday show and... It's going to be a great 2018 here in the Freedom Hut. That much I can assure you of. Uh, TJ writes in with the following. Buck, perch is not a junk fish. I'd take a bucket full of perch over bass any time to eat. They grow perch like footballs up in the glacial lakes of Sodak. South Dakota, I guess? Uh Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend the perch-eating community. I just have a particular fondness for landing a big bass. And maybe I'll try to post some of those photos. I think the best ones are actually of my little brother, you know, holding up a fish that we used to call a crappie, which I'm sure is not actually what it's called, but crappie and perch and uh, bass. And I remember going fishing with my dad up in Minnesota and that was when I was introduced to pike and uh, muskie 
and walleye and all that good stuff. Muscalunge. So, uh, okay, perch is good for eating. I, I stand uh, corrected on that. And thank you, TJ, and a Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for writing in. Josh, with the following... Don't change a thing, Buck. Your show has quickly become my favorite talk show, period. I have listened to Rush Limbaugh and many others over the years, but your humble, light, courteous manner, combined with excellent uh, analysis, make this the most enjoyable and informative show on the air. Not just politics, but it's a show about so many things and primarily about policies, uh, love the practical, not theoretical takes to issues particular on national security. Well, J- uh, Josh, thank you so much for the kind words about the show. It means a lot. And uh, I am deeply gratified that you enjoy all the research and, and effort that I put into this. Uh, so thank you. Joe is next up on Team Buck Speaks. Meat, bacon, chocolate, whole milk, and French fries. Sounds like a list of virtues and the majority of my diet. (laughs) Joe, you're not the only one, buddy. Me too. Squirt is a very tasty grapefruit pop. You should give it a try. Feel free to share this with the rest of the team, Buck, and Shields High. Well, Joe, yeah, I think those are my food weaknesses. Meat, bacon, chocolate, whole milk, and French fries. Those are the things that I should probably try to limit my intake of, but... I'm not really capable of limiting it, so I just deal. Uh, or, or, or I'm not successful in limiting it as much as I should. Uh, somebody asked me that recently, if you had to give up uh, chocolate or any form of potato, so that's not just French fries, but sweet potato, all potato, what would it be? And my roughly 50% Irish heritage was like, you give up that chocolate, lad. And I was like, uh, I don't know. It's a tough call. It's a tough call. Uh, Bo writes in with the following. Hey, Buck, what is the chance of getting Tyrone's opinion of the committee's BCS playoff choices, in particular Alabama versus Ohio State or Wisconsin, Shields High and Roll Tide? Well, why don't we say this? Tyrone, tomorrow, uh, let us know what you think. We'll close out the show and we'll get Tyrone's uh, opinion during Team Buck Speaks then, because I got him working on something right now, uh, on what's going on with the BCS playoff choices. James, with the next one. Uh, hey, Buck, love listening to your show. I'm looking forward to the history podcast talking about terrorists attacking trains. In World War II, Nazi Germany tried to attack the horseshoe curve in Blair County, Pennsylvania. During the war, it was a very important rail, still is to this day. Merry Christmas. Hmm, James, uh, I will have to check that out. Uh, And I think that's where we're going to have to... Oh, wait, no, we got one more from Mikey here. Hey, uh, Buck and Team Buck, this is going to be a bit out of the park. So I just received orders to Korea and follow on to Germany. For the first time in my three decades of life, I'll be experiencing a winter from Texas. My question is leather jackets, not the biker kind or anything, but what am I looking for in a jacket in terms of general price range for quality and where to look? Where I'm currently stationed, I haven't felt below 80 in over two years. Any help appreciated. Well, Mikey, I feel like this is kind of a climate humble brag you're pulling off here with, well, I've never had to deal with a winter, which I can appreciate. I can't say that I know all that much about leather jackets. I don't own one now that I think about it. I can tell you that my father, 
uh, Mason, also known as Speed Sexton, is a leather jacket connoisseur and has been for as long as I've been alive. So I will pose the question to uh, to Dad. I'll I'll ask him what is the best leather jacket for the money that you can get these days, and I'm sure he will have an excellent answer for me. And Mikey, I will uh, write it to you via Facebook. All right, team. Like I said, only a few days before we uh, take our holiday break, so be sure to join us every day this week. Download that podcast. Get in the queue so that the History Show will pop up automatically starting in January in iTunes or on the iHeart app. Have a fantastic rest of your evening or day. Until next time, Merry Christmas and Shields High.